go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for everybody who loves something or everything about aviation. My name is Hal Bryan and I'm one of the hosts. I'm senior editor for print and digital content and publications here at EAA, sitting next to me on my left. I'm also one of the hosts, but I'm not Hal. I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Museum Programs Coordinator. And over across the table. Also a host, neither Hal nor Chris, Tom Charpentier. EAA Government Relations Director. I, I love how we're narrowing things down. Yeah, people really got it figured out now who we are. So. And uh, I feel like we could just wrap it here and say this was a success <laughs> because we all learned something. But that would be a colossal uh, colossal waste <laughs> yeah. of an amazing guest. Well, I mean, Chris, there are guests, and then there are guests, and I think today we can say we have – we have a guest. So I think so, yeah. Why don't you tell absolutely. us who's, uh, who's with us today? Uh, today we're sitting here with astronaut uh, General Joe Engel. If uh, you're a fan of the space program and test flight, this is a gentleman who flew uh, uh, F-100 fighters and then into the X-15 test plane, which is probably one of the more iconic test aircraft, uh, certainly one of the more uh, sleek and revolutionary-looking airplanes. And let's face it, the, the coolest. Oh, it is. It is absolutely. just hands down <laughs> yeah. the coolest X-plane ever built. Yep. And then on into flight tests for the shuttles and uh, in shuttle missions as well. So uh, welcome to the Green Dot, uh, General Engel. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you, guys. It's, uh, it's great to be on with a bunch of airplane Airplane lovers. I was going to say airplane geeks, but I've been... <laughs> That's perfectly we've been okay. Called, we've been called worse than that, too. People, yes. people who appreciate it. Right. I've been called worse by worse. <laughs> yes, so absolutely. I can absolutely. tell you that. Well, it's, uh, it really is terrific to have you here, Joe, and it, uh, it, it means a lot to us that you're willing to take some time out. Uh, you're here in town. At the time we're recording this, you're here in town to speak at our annual Wright Brothers Memorial Dinner. Uh, and you've done some other interviews and, and things with us today, so we can't thank you enough for being so generous with your time. Oh, it's my honor to be here with oh. you. And again, thank you for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. Uh, we could do this. Uh, we could do this all day, and I promise you, we will win in the terms of uh, of thanking each other. Okay. okay? So <laughs> let's let's draw that line to the sand right there. We are more grateful than you, sir. <laughs> so let's go back. Uh, let's go back a ways. Uh, do you remember when you when you first uh, when you first decided that you you liked aviation and that was something you wanted to pursue? Was there a time as a kid uh, that you looked up and saw an airplane, or when did when did that get you? I don't remember when it started. I, I honestly don't. In fact, my my mom is the same way. People have asked her when did he when did he first want to fly an airplane. She can't remember when the first time was either. I, I never wanted to be anything else but a pilot, uh, be a good pilot, and uh, uh, that I never wanted to be. You know, I never seriously wanted to be a cowboy. I never went to learn how to go to cowboy school. Or anything <laughs> right. But I, I always wanted to fly, and uh, just and, and it was kind of. Uh, fortuitous, it was great for me because I don't think I had enough skills or talent or anything to do to any two things. So <laughs> I could focus on being a pilot. <laughs> not not necessarily a, a multitasker is what no, you're trying to say. But uh, <laughs> I think there's some people who might uh, disagree. <laughs> well, can you tell us a little bit about your your first uh, uh, your first job in aviation? Let's see. The first real job was. Uh, when I was in going to college, um, in the summers I would go down. I worked for Wichita, a Cessna Aircraft Company at Wichita, and um, that was my first job really uh, as a draftsman, as a, a, a just a regular old line draftsman drawing nuts and bolts for engine installations at Cessna. Uh, but it it started me and it got me into the aviation community and 
and um, my boss at Cessna was the head of the power plants design division, and and uh, he worked with me both on my skills at drafting, and but he also was an instructor at CFI, and so uh, he taught he he taught me to fly and uh, helped me get started in, in aviation. And what would you have been uh, learning to fly in at that point? About what era was this? Well, this was in the 1950s, and uh, the airplane I sh started to fly really was the uh, Cessna 120. Okay. I worked at a little grass strip airport, and uh, in the evenings after after work at Cessna, and I, I didn't have to put that money in to go to, back to school, so I, I, I was able to uh, trade working at the airport for flying time in the in their Cessna 120. Oh, that's fantastic. And uh, uh, I'd work eight hours sweeping hangers and cleaning toilets and sorting bolts and nuts and um, get one hour of flight time in the 120. Wow. And then Henry would would give me an instruction. Wow. Now, was that part of the Cessna? Did you say you were part of the Cessna Flying Club, the Employee Flying Club? The Cessna time? Employees Flying Club. They had a wonderful flight program that encouraged uh, employees of the company. Dwayne Wallace was very sure. high in making aviation available to everybody and um, with very, very, very reasonable flight rates at the Employees Flying Club. That's terrific. We have a, a staff flying club here. And Tom and I at various times have both been on the on the board of directors for that. And uh, we've never once considered making anybody clean toilets in exchange <laughs> for flying time. Tom, no, no, be, we, we have not. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, let's bring that to the next meeting. Yeah. How much do you pay your toilet paper? Right <laughs> not nearly enough. I can, I can promise you. So that. We should start with cleaning the aircraft first. <laughs> yeah, yeah then work, work our way up yeah, to the yeah, toilet. Exactly. That's really amazing, though. That you got your start just like everybody, or the rest of us anyway, in, in general aviation. And I'm sure most of uh, most EAA members, uh, hopefully a lot of folks listening, um, that you know, you really did get your start firmly in the GA world before you moved on. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what led you to uh, military flying, and then and then on to, uh, to to actually flight testing? Yeah, you kind of touched on it, Tom. I I I saw right away that I, I wasn't going to be able to afford to fly on my own. So if I was going to if I wanted to do what I wanted to do, which was to be a pilot of some real airplanes, that I, I was going to have to go through Air Force flight training and or Navy flight training, I had considered both, and learned to fly and then fly fly in the military. So about what uh, what year did you end up going into the Air Force then? Uh, 1956. I graduated 1956. from uh, University of Kansas and uh, went and got my commission, ROTC commission, at the same time. Actually, it was a number of months after that before there was an open flight slot that I could get into. Okay. I think it was about eight, eight months or so that I worked at Cessna. Uh, until my my assignment came up, and uh, then I left and went in the Air Force. And when you when you got into the Air Force, what would you have started your flight training in at that point? Uh, our primary initial primary trainer was the T thirty four. Okay. Beechcraft T thirty four. It was essentially a Bonanza, uh, a tandem Bonanza, two seat tandem Bonanza right. with a stick and uh, conventional controls rather than the V tail. We're, we're smirking just a little bit because we we know the two thirty four guys <laughs> don't always love it when you say, "Well, it's kind of a it's it's basically a Bonanza," but let's face it, it's well, it's, the, it's a cool tandem know, Bonanza. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, mold line wise, it was pretty close to Bonanza. Yeah, it had a few more G's. I think it beefed up the wings bars for uh, Klutzes to fly on. <laughs> 
did you, when you were in the T-34s and, and starting to go through this whole process, did you have your, your heart set on fighters the entire time, or were you, were yeah. you open to anything? No, the entire time was, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. In fact, okay. long before I ever started school, I think I, I had, I think Dad gave me a few, I don't know, quarter or dime or whatever it cost to go see a movie in Chapman, Kansas at that time. And uh, I, got, I got hooked on flying. I think there was a show on uh, bush plane flying, uh, flying with you know, pontoons up in Alaska. Oh, that, neat. That got me hooked. And then I, I also wanted to be a flying tiger fighter pilot oh, and wow. uh, fly with Tex Hill and those guys. And, and John Wayne. And John Wayne. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so you go into the Air Force, and uh, after the T-34, uh, can you walk us through the transition of aircraft that you went through, the trainers that you'd go through? The uh, primary training uh, composed, consisted of both the T-34, which is his initial airplane, and I think we had, I think we got 60 hours in that or so, something like that. And then uh, they switched us over to T-28s, the North American T-28, and that, that was a big jump in size. That, that airplane was intimidating to look at when you were a T-34 pilot. Parked out on the end of the runway waiting to take off, and a T-28 would come up and tower over you. It's about at least twice as tall, right? Yeah, it's like a two-story building next yeah. to you on the ramp. <laughs> that, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. And then to hear it run, though, uh, it took some of your fear away because it sounded, you know, that it was five uh, stacks coming out one side and four out the other. Yeah. And it sounded like it was, you know, not rigged right. It sounded like an old an old tractor out on a farm. And, it's a real lopey, throaty yeah, kind of right. sound, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. But it flew good. It was a good flying airplane. Yeah. It was a great, great trainer. So then from uh, from there, from the T-28s? T-28s to T-33s at okay. Webb Air Force Base. And, uh, and that was uh, where we got our wings after we finished that course at um, primary basic flying training. And then from there um, to fighter school, fighter gunnery school at um, Luke Air Force Base. That's in Arizona? In Arizona. Williams, Phoenix. Arizona? Mm-hmm. Williams is in Phoenix. That's also. right, Williams is in Phoenix as well. Wow, all right. And then um, on, on to fighters, and uh, Chris said you flew the F-100. Was that, your, uh, was that the primary aircraft you flew when you were, uh, when you were in the Air Force? That's right. Um, the fighter gunnery transition school, or fighter gunnery school, was at Luke, and we actually flew F-84Fs there. Uh, and um, then at that point in time is when we got our assignments for... Um, for squadron assignments, and and I I got one that um, uh, transitioned to the F-100 about a six-week course at Nellis, and then assignment to the squadron at, at George Air Force Base in California. Wow. And then did you deploy overseas after that with uh, the F-100? Or We did. We deployed for short deployments, uh, TDYs, uh, to Spain and Italy uh, with the F-100s. Way the squadron would deploy for it, it was supposed to be I think a six month TDY in order to qualify for TDY but we always ended up being there another month or two over just because it was hard to, hard to get the next squadron ready to come and sure. relieve you. Did you uh, did you enjoy the F one hundred? I loved it. Yeah, no? yeah, I really did. I I realized later it it was a heavy old airplane and uh, uh, kind of a slug really in in a lot of ways except it had an afterburner that. that could uh, give you some good acceleration when you needed it. Right. But uh, I really liked the, the F-100. Um, enjoyed gunnery in it and uh, enjoyed um, enjoyed simulated combat, aerial combat in it, too. Now, when you were transitioning to the 100, were there were there two-seat? Was there a trainer version of the 100 at the time, or 
or did you go straight into the single seat? Each squadron had at least one sing, uh, dual, dual seat airplane, okay. the, the F model. Um, and those ended up, uh, guys, once they got, had gone through Nellis, once we'd gone through Nellis and had the six-week training school at Nellis in, in 100s, when we got to the squadron, they would put you right in the single seat. The, the two-seater was mainly mainly used for VIP rides, you know, ah. dollar rides and, and stuff like that, and instrument yeah. training. Oh, interesting. Okay. So did you enjoy your time out at George? I loved it, yeah. Yeah, I sure did. Because it, it was a lot of flying. Uh, I started getting to fly different kinds of airplanes. Uh, the uh, For air-to-air air to gunnery at that time, we towed the banner. And the banner was generally towed with another F-100. And if not, then you could fly whatever that was towing the banner for gunnery, for gunnery emissions. So you not I, by doing that, you could not only fly the 100 for training, gunnery training, but you could build, build your flying time up a little bit by flying the, the tow, team, tow, tow plane. What other types of airplanes were they been, would they have been using to tow the, uh, the gunnery sleeve at that point? B-26. Oh, wow. Uh, the the uh, B-26 and it... We had a P-80 also um, that towed, had a banner tow rigged up on, on the pylon on the wing. So when you're, you're towing the banner and you're, you've got other people coming at you, it's, it's live ammunition, things like this, are you, are you worried? <laughs> are you worried at all? Even yeah, that probably, that, that's, I didn't have never thought of it uh, that way, but I, I think, you know. <laughs> I didn't mean to bring it up just now, <laughs> the first time. No, but. <laughs> but really, you know, when you, when, you, when you roll in and you pull in on the banner, uh, one of the things that is, is strictly forbidden is to get your angle of off angle angle off too low, so you're not shooting right up into the banner into the tow plane. Right. Wow. And so you'd you'd always uh, it was a relief to hear the guy that was hot in the hot pass coming in to c- hear him call breaking off, and, then, <laughs> <laughs> and you knew that you weren't going to take any slugs up your tailpipe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I had a uh, I had a friend who's, who passed away several years ago, but he flew. Uh, P-63s, and they called it the pinball. Yeah. And that was uh, the ones that they were sort of beefed up, painted bright orange, and then they were using something like rubber bullets. And apparently, like, actually not just towing a target, but actually impacting the airplane. And oh, that's, is that right? Yeah. That, uh, I, I just don't see how uh, how you get somebody to sign up for that job. Yeah. <laughs> but, we didn't use rubber bullets. Yeah, we well, sure. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, the rag would, uh, the rag that we were shooting at that, I forget the dimensions of it, but probably about four feet, four feet by maybe twenty or twenty-five feet long. Wow! And uh, the the bullets would be dipped in different paint colors depending on which airplane was for for each airplane. Oh, sure. So you could <laughs> so score you know the banner. You know, more than one person could score. Could shoot on the same banner because wow. uh, we got very few hits. So. <laughs> <laughs> How did you basically come to go to the test pilot uh, school? The test pilot school required, as I recall, it was 1,500 hours of high-performance time. And um, uh, the P-80 that we were using to tow with, that counted toward that. Um, the F-100 time counted, of course. And uh, so it was just a matter of sniveling as much flying time as I could, as quickly <laughs> as I could, to get that 1,500 hours so that I could get my application in to the school. So that was a goal of yours, Either all along, or at least from very early on. Not, not all along, but pretty early on. Yeah, okay. I as soon as, as soon as I got in college, uh, in order to go to flight school, you had to have, at one time, two years of college. And right. while I decided that's worth it, I'll, I can handle that. <laughs> then they changed the requirement to four years of college. You had to have a degree. Okay. 
Uh, and so uh, that's that's why I then just went ahead and decided to go ahead and get an aeronautical engineering degree, and because uh, it had airplane on the on the parchment. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that, that meant a lot to me at the time. A man after her own heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got your application into uh, to test pilot school. So you hit your fifteen hundred hours. You put your application into test pilot school. What's what was next in the process? Was there was there a long time to wait? To... No, it turns out it it, wouldn't, it didn't take long to wait. I don't know what the selection process was. In fact, any selection process you ask about, you know, the X-15 selection or astronaut right. selection, I don't know how they came up with that. Because <laughs> every time, every time uh, you know, you come out, I would come out saying, God, I wonder what the day, because what am I doing in this group? And, and uh, I really felt like I had been... Like a mistake had been made, but if I was quiet enough and didn't make any noise, well, they might not notice. I think every single one of us goes through our entire careers thinking <laughs> that same thing. I hope they don't find out. I have no idea what I'm doing here. Yeah, I always feel sorry for uh, yeah the, the 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 poor guy who uh, didn't get your job so that you could or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, you come out of uh, test pilot school. What was your first assignment um, flying as a flying as a test pilot? I, I was very lucky, uh, very fortunate. Uh, I got assigned to uh, fighter test operations at Edwards, which is where all the experimental and high-speed flying was done. The initial flights on the new airplanes was done. And uh, I think everybody, n not everyone, but nearly everyone, really wanted to go to fighter test operations at Edwards. Uh, it was a very de desirable slot. And I got to go down there and fly a bunch of high-performance airplanes in and Really got a taste for it. So, were you flying the uh, the prototypes of um, of some fighters that became operational? Uh, what, what were you? Uh... Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, some of them coming through. A lot of them were development flights, separation tests for new weapon systems that were, were carried under the wing, mm -hmm. or rockets or bombs delivered to make sure that they would fall free, mm -hmm. fire free from the airplane, and and that the exhaust from rockets didn't flame your airplane out when you're firing and shooting. Uh, but there were some. Early flights, the F-5, for example, the fighter version of the T-38, uh, uh, that I got to be part of the team on that fighter t fighter test team on the uh, F-5, and uh, the uh, coin airplanes, the counterinsurgency airplanes, the the A-37 and <laughs> the A-28, Y-A-T-28, the T-28 turbo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I w as a matter of fact, they came along when some other more exotic airplanes are being tested, and as a new guy down there, that I got those two projects, uh, and got to fly both airplanes. And we, Russ Rogers and I, were the two test pilots on that. And it, I think we had more fun going up and dogfighting with those two airplanes because <laughs> they were really performers. They, that is just absolutely in, incredible. Were there any airplanes in that uh, in that period that uh, that you, you looked at and you said you you either weren't so sure if uh, if you were up for flying this or or after the fact you said boy I wished I'd never flown that thing no not really because even even the even the ones were, were maybe less desirable like the uh, uh, F-102 trainer you know the side-by-side -side trainer oh sure yeah the it, Dumbo and uh, <laughs> it was a slug of an airplane to fly but I learned a lot about limited characteristics like that airplane had and I think there was a lot to learn from all the, any airplane. Any airplane can teach you a lot. That's a uh, that's a remarkable attitude, and it's a, I think it's a powerful lesson too. That 
as you said, even the, the, the less desirable airplanes still have a lot to, uh, a lot to teach us. Yeah, you bet that's, your life. That's powerful. Can you tell us uh, how you felt uh, or walk us through getting selected for the X-15? Yes, and again, I'm, I have no idea how that happened and how it had, came down to me, but I know, I know the sequence of things that happened. I, uh, a bunch of us had just graduated from the Advanced Test Pilot School, which is kind of slang-wise called a test pilot, a Space Test Pilot School. Aerospace Research Pilot School is a formal name. And it, it was when the Air Force decided we've got to we've got to start teaching guys how to fly above the atmosphere, out of the atmosphere, and how to control spacecraft. Because at that time, they were thinking about military operations and requirements. They weren't didn't have them nailed down at all. But the school started teaching us about reaction control flying and and, uh, and things like that. And um, so a bunch of us from flight test flight test ops had been selected to go to this school and, and form a class, which was only about six or seven guys. And Mike Collins was one of those guys, Charlie Bassett, Ed Givens, and I can't remember all of Jim Roman. Um, when we graduated, NASA had made an announcement that they were going to make another selection of astronauts. So everybody applied. It was, you know, the, the thing to do. And um, uh, and I, I applied along with everyone else and, and didn't really think that I had a great chance of making it because I didn't have a master's degree. I had just a bachelor's degree in engineering. And, and um, at, by then, a lot of other guys had at least had master's degrees, if not doctorate degrees. And uh, so uh, I, I was flying at test offs one day, and uh, Bob Rushworth called, called and said, hey, uh, General Branch called down. He wants to see you in his office. And that generally meant you had done something that really wasn't going to be all that popular. And, uh, although General Branch was a great, great guy, just a great person, uh, and really understood things, it, you still didn't want to have to go up or be singled out to go to his office. And so I got out of my flight suit and into my, my khakis and went up and knocked, and the aide told me to come in, and I went in and stood attention in front of his desk and he was looking through some papers and I think that was part of the act just to make me nervous you know like call time out when the guys ready to kick a field goal yeah. Yeah. <laughs> same kind of deal and so I was standing there fidgeting and he finally he said well sit down and um, he had the, he had my application for uh, NASA to come to NASA to train and he said well I see you've applied for astronaut training and I said yes sir and he said don't you like it here and I assured him that I really did um, and he, he kind of got quiet, picked up my application and just tore it in half and threw all the pieces down there on the table in front of him, shoved them over toward me and said, well, I don't think I'm going to approve yours at this time. And I, wow. well, you know, to be honest, I kind of felt like I was in luckier than snot and in over my head <laughs> anyway by being at fighter test. And I, I thought, okay, well, I'll go back down. I'll be happy down there. I've, I've, I've achieved what I really wanted to do. And uh, he he really at that time had the group of people that select you for Air Force slots in the X-15 had had decided that I was going to take Bob White's place when Bob left to go to Germany uh, for his next assignment. <laughs> now I didn't know that at the time, but I found out later that that's what it was. And I was thrilled to death because the X-15 was extremely desirable assignment. So it, at at that point the uh 
had you seen an X, the X-15 or oh, yeah. had, they'd been flying it? So you were they, they very well flying. aware of it. Yeah, yeah. And it had flown, and I can't tell you how many I should I should know, and I'll go find out. But it had flown a number of flights. Uh, right. I would guess 20, 25 flights uh, between Scott Crossfield and Joe Walker and uh, Joe White. Or Bob White, I'm sorry. Right. Now, you've got a great story about being the new guy on the X-15, and there was a base tour from a VIP. You've oh. got to tell that. It's a great story. <laughs> oh. Well, periodically, congressmen and senators would visit a base, you know, and they always rolled everything out to make a, make a good, quick tour so that they'll be impressed and, and cough up more money for <laughs> research and, or more squadrons and stuff. And then get out of your hair. And then get out of your hair. <laughs> and uh, Hubert Humphrey was the uh, senator. He he was a neat little guy. He, <laughs> little pudgy face. Neat you know, he, just, <laughs> he, he was just like a, like a little puppy. You wanted to reach out and scratch him and watch him because he was always smiling and always friendly. And so the, Edwards had uh, all the new airplanes in the new in the it was a new at that time very big maintenance hangar big, big enough to take B-52s oh, in you know yeah, and yeah. several of them at the time at a time and they had that hangar cleaned out and they had all the new research airplanes lined up around the edge so that they could drive this convertible around on the inside and make a loop and um, but they had to have a guy, one of the pilots on the program for each airplane, standing by the airplane in case he had any questions. And I was the new guy in AX-15 at that time, and so I was the designated talker for the X-15. And uh, his entourage came in, and they drove in through the big hangar doors that were open. And, and the X-15 was black and looked different than a lot of air, other airplanes that were laying around. And I think that's what made him stop. I saw him reach up and tap on the, the driver's shoulder, and he stopped. And he got out, and he walked over to the airplane smiling. And, and I was scared. I, I really thought, I don't even know whether I'm going to be able to talk with this guy here. <laughs> and he uh, said, well, young man, he said, uh, what have we here? And I, I, I said, it's an X-15, sir. And he said, no, is that right? Well, it's a fine-looking airplane. He says, uh, how high will it go and how fast will it go? And I told him. I don't think it registered with him really, but he, he made out like it did. You know, well, that's amazing. That's <laughs> and he said, how many squadrons of these do we have? And they'd only built three airplanes. Right. You know, and one of them was always out for maintenance. And, and I, I blurted out, well, not very many, sir, I don't think. And, and he said, well, I'll certainly take care of that when I get back to Washington. <laughs> <laughs> Turned around, got in the car, and drove off. And uh, I had to really stifle a, a grin. In <laughs> we were this close to having squadrons of extra things <laughs> yeah. deployed all over the world. You could make a sky blow. Oh, man, exactly. <laughs> oh, you may have been cute, Hubert Humphrey, but you let us down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, you know, he really was. He was just a super friendly guy. Of course, that's the politician in him, I'm sure. Some of it sure. is. But, but I think he was sincerely friendly. I do. And... Uh, <laughs> It was a fun experience for me, one I've not forgotten. And I get to tell a story often enough that it, it gets a little better each time. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's like flying the X-15. The things that you do in it, uh, every flight you got to do amazing stuff. But I'm the only pilot still living that flew it, so every time I tell a story, it gets a lot more amazing. <laughs> Who's going to challenge it? <laughs> there he was on my fourth orbit of the Earth. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
Well, I guess we have gotten to that point in the program where uh, we we would like to ask you how um, what was an X fifteen flight like? What was it like getting shot off the front of a B fifty two and up into space? Yeah. yeah, can you step us actually step us through one, sort of take us on a take us on a flight, sort of start sure. to finish? Sure, and, and and to start out with, let me let me answer your your question, Tom. The the X fifteen was the most amazing airplane that I, I've ever flown. I've gotten to fly a whole bunch of different kinds of airplanes, um, and a, and a whole spectrum of them. But there's nothing that comes as close to being as as challenging to fly and yet as rewarding to to finish up a flight in and, and crawl out of the cockpit than the X-15 because it was a good, solid flying airplane through most of the envelope, the performance envelope. And it was, uh, as a test pilot, you know, you, you were really working your tail off. It, it was flights that only last about... 10 minutes, 10, 11 minutes. Um, we would cool the cockpit down by nitri- opening the mi- nitrogen valve and liquid nitrogen that pressurized the cabin and, and cooled the cabin as well. So you'd be shaken uh, right away like when that nitrogen came in and uh, cold, really, really cold. But you wow. knew that 10 minutes later you'd, ro- you'd slide out on the dry lake bed and you'd just be rolling in sweat. Sweat would be pouring <laughs> off of you. And uh, part of it was aerodynamic heating, but uh, I think a lot of it was you were just so intense, working so intense on flying it. And and I don't know whether you, you wanted to step through a profile uh, of launch and stuff. You, yeah, we'd love to. Uh, yeah. Even starting with, uh, like I was never never sure, is the airplane uh, mated to the B-52 mothership before you get in, or do you get in first and then you're hoisted up so... Maybe just take us through the process. Sure. No. No. The the X fifteen is mated during the night, during the night before a flight. There's uh, a joke in there somewhere. Yeah. No. <laughs> <I'm sure> there <laughs> is. Like we're a family show. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> yes. Next time. <laughs> well, the X fifteen was attached to the B fifty two during the night before uh, flight, and uh, you'd get down there very early in the morning, and it'd be outgassing. All kinds of uh, ammonia, anhydrous ammonia, frozen anhydrous ammonia, and liquid oxygen. Uh, it was an eerie thing to to drive by and see it. And you'd get suited up in the van, and then they, the uh, technicians were checking out all the systems. And it took a long time to get them all checked out. Um, you'd get aboard, and after about an hour of um, of of the medical exams and getting suited up in the pressure suit, you're finally ready to get on board. And then once you're on board, the canopy would be closed, uh, and the airplane, the B-52, would crank engines and taxi out to the end of the runway. And that took that took a good time, about 30 minutes to get out the end of the runway. And then wow. B-52 taking off up to launch was about another hour and 10 or 15 minutes. Oh, do you have checklists you're running through at this point, or yeah, are you? Yeah, absolutely. You bet. Okay. And and most of it was conditioning of the systems or or checking of the systems, cranking up auxiliary power units to make sure you had to correct. They were putting out the correct hydraulic pressures, making sure the tanks were all holding pressure like they should. Didn't have weren't losing any propellant, and uh, uh, and and a lot of times we didn't because the X-15 was pretty much state of the art then, and and it was not uncommon to have to abort a mission and turn around, dump your fuel, and they'd come back in and land. In fact, I had I had as many aborts as I did 
drops. Really? Yeah, and and that was I don't think that was uncommon. I don't think anybody right. really had any concerns with it because the other guys had the same ratios. And obviously there was no issue with the B-52 landing with the X-15 still still attached. That was so the hairiest part. When when you when you were on board the X-15 during a landing, there wasn't any issues with it. But it was you're so helpless. I mean, you're sitting out there under the wing like a bomb, like a dumb bomb. Right. Yeah. And you're counting on Fitz, you know, to do everything. You, you, <laughs> you can't punch the mic and say, Fitz going to help you out anyway. I've got tiny little ailerons over here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Can I get the gear or anything? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you didn't have any control. You didn't even have any hydraulic pressure because you'd, you'd stopped the, the APUs okay. by that time. I think that was the part that I always was the most nervous about when it was happening. I didn't think about it ahead of time, and after you landed, you know, it's all, oh, well, that's done. I hope I never have to do that again. <laughs> but you always did. <laughs> <laughs> so on a, on a flight that, uh, where you did drop, let's, yeah. go, let's go back to that, where maybe an hour, hour and ten minutes into the B-52 flight, you're, you're doing checklists. What's, uh, what's the next thing there? As the B-52 maneuvered into the point over the ground where you would drop, the final checks would, would be made in the last four, about four minutes in the, the final in orbit okay. to line up and come over the drop point. And they could track the B-52 very accurately with ground radar uh, from Ely and, and Beatty and Tonopah, oh. the ground sites. It's about the only real-time data that the guys in the control room had. They didn't have telemetry then. And so uh, that, that, was, that was all they knew was ground track and and altitude, and that's two calls that you'd get. You're on track, or you're left to track, or right, mm -hmm. uh, or you're high or low on profile. And your drop altitude would have been about? Uh, 40, 45,000 feet. 45,000? 45,000 feet, about 0.82 to 83 Mach. Um, and you, you, would, you would drop yourself. Um, the X-1 was dropped from the mothership, but, but uh, the X-15 had a little bit of a roll-off because it's mounted over on one side of the fuselage under the wing in a pylon, and when it would roll off the, the airflow around the fuselage, the B-52 would cause a roll to the right on the X-15. So it always okay. rolled off to the right a little bit. You had to catch that, correct it, uh, check your pitch, get on the angle of attack correctly, and then get the engine lit. They wouldn't let you light the engine while you're still hooked up to the B-52. <laughs> a little bit of differential thrust on the B-52 at that thrust, point. Yeah. So you, and you dropped yourself, and then, and then lit the engine right away. So it was a very rapid sequence once you started. Once you hit the drop switch, it didn't take anybody any time at all to get that throttle on because, boy, you just drop like a rock when you. Sure. What does that feel like uh, when the engine kicks in? Uh, a good, solid, warm feeling that you that the engine lit <laughs> <laughs> and, and didn't explode. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> so that's a checklist item. The engine did not explode. Yeah, right. Check. <laughs> Do not explode engine. Yes. <laughs> Normally, if especially the first few flights, they they you would. They would give you, you'd, you'd fly at a reduced power setting, thrust setting. You, the engine would run at 50% thrust, but it was a little bit rough, and so you always had to push it up just a little bit more, get a smooth burning engine. But a lot of flights, they didn't want full thrust. They wanted a lower thrust, so they had more time at a given condition, oh, either sure. dynamic pressure or temperature or, or whatever. So if you're doing a flight at, at 50 or a little more, 50% thrust, what sort of speeds are you seeing there? What, what does the next 15 do at half throttle, I guess, is what I'm thinking. <laughs> well, at, at, at half throttle, uh, the engine will burn longer because sure. the fuel is being burned less. So it, you lose some total energy, all right. Right. Uh, most of the time, the, the partial throttle flights were either initiation flights, 
inauguration flights for, okay. for new guys. For new or once you got to a condition, if it was a heating flight, and you want the engineers want it stabilized at a certain condition or at a, a certain Mach number to, to pull so many Gs and see how the shock wave affects the lift and the control surfaces and all, uh, you, you would throttle back to whatever, 75% sure. or 70%, and then go through that maneuvering. And you could get more data that way at those conditions for the engineers, and they, they had more to look at. I think you just alluded to a question that I had, and that is I guess I'd always thought about the X-15 program as like, you know, obviously an, an incredibly awesome experience for anybody who participated in it. But, of course, it was a test aircraft. You were accomplishing certain test points on every flight. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what the objectives were of, of some of the flights that you flew? Like what, what kind of things were, were you doing that were different on, on each flight? Shockwave interaction over the surfaces, either the wings or the ailerons or um, or the stabilizers. And, and, and I say ailerons, but we really didn't have ailerons. We had differential stabilizers for roll. Mm -hmm. oh. But, but the, uh, the interaction of, and, and how, much, how much the shock wave off the nose affected and decreased uh, your, margin of, your margin of control. I see. Um, and uh, it, on the altitude flights, we were doing things like uh, measuring atmosphere, taking signatures, ultraviolet, infrared signatures of the atmosphere, the, particularly the horizon, for guidance systems, for follow-on guidance systems. Huh. And, okay. Uh, so what were the uh, – and, and I, 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 this feels sort of – I don't know, gauche asking this, but uh, I'll be the uh, you know I'll be the little kid in the room. So, what were the what were the fastest and and the highest uh, flights for you? I I did not get to Mach six. I got to five point something, and I can't remember five point seven or something like that. And um, altitude wise, I had a, a number of flights that were over over two hundred and fifty, two hundred eighty thousand feet. As a matter of fact, wow. um, and and that qualified. That qualified me for astronaut rating, uh, which I was very proud of, but it was kind of an artificial astronaut rating was depending on, well, what do you want to pick for space as an altitude? You right, know, like 50 it, miles or 100 kilometers exactly, or all yeah, of those things. Because at 240,000 feet, your surfaces didn't work anymore. There wasn't yeah. enough uh, dynamic pressure to control the airplane. So you were flying, controlling the attitude of the airplane with reaction controls. So basically, little little jets. Little jets, yeah. But, mm -hmm. Was that um, just just out of curiosity? On your um, your space flights, was that higher or lower than uh, Shepard and Grissom's uh, Mercury flights? Uh, let's say it was lower than Gus Grissom's. I, I think we got up as high as Al went. Joe Walker actually went up to three hundred and sixty thousand feet, but it was ballistic up and fall oh, right back down. We didn't back go down. into orbit. Yeah, because we didn't have enough velocity to sure yeah. get into orbit and stay into orbit. Mm -hmm. I never, I don't know why I didn't. I've never heard it compared that way. To, yeah, me neither. It was a great question. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a that's, that's fantastic. A fascinating thought, and and you know, you talk about the, the the line to space being sort of arbitrary. I think when you're flying an airplane, you go up high enough that nothing on it works anymore. <laughs> I think that's that's an important boundary. I think you, you sure deserve not. whatever you get at it that ought, point. It ought to have a name. It's, it's ought to have a name, and why not space? <laughs> it is kind of funny because, uh, you know, there's, there's so many different definitions of how high is space. Right. And you're, and you're absolutely right. When, it's, when it stops flying like an airplane, 
to me, that's you've got to start flying it like a spacecraft, and uh, that might be a good place to start unless somebody's got a good argument. And, and I also uh, want to say for the record that I, I think not quite Mach 6 is still really, really fast. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. That's an understatement. We were talking earlier, and uh, I know Jeannie's here with us, and we were talking about uh, his familiarization flight. You said, oh, I went out on my check flight in the aircraft, and, uh, you know, oh, we were on Mach 4. You know, and just testing it out on your familiarization flight. I'm like, <laughs> and the yeah, Blackbird guys say that they're fast when they're at Mach three, right? You know, yeah, they're wrecking at Mach. Mach Bob, three. Bob Rushworth used to love to kid those guys. They'd come down to Edwards on Friday night for beer calling, and, yeah. and uh, he would call them his uh, .5 V Max friends. <laughs> <laughs> and just looking here, uh, Jeannie actually handed us a little fact here. Shepard's uh, Mercury flight actually uh, went uh, to an altitude of 116 miles. So, oh wow! So that was miles. that, that, that was quite we a bit didn't higher, get but, that high then. Yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, but but you're but you're still up in that in the ne- neck of the woods. Right. I mean, that's only really a few that's more miles. You know. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I know, uh, like Spaceship One, the X Prize flights, like the end number on Spaceship One is three two eight kilo foxtrot for three hundred twenty eight thousand feet, yeah. and yeah. that was uh, you know that was their target, but uh, um, so they were uh, when that came along, they were getting into certainly well into the your neighborhood in terms of altitude. But I don't recall them ever going that fast. I thought it was closer down to around Mach 3, maybe, or even Mach 2, something. That's, that's absolutely right. They, they, oh. By the profiles that they were hoping to fly, didn't require, they, they weren't even thinking about being going orbital or, or Sure, fast. yeah. All they wanted to do was get straight up to an altitude and then feather all the surfaces and flop back down right. into the atmosphere. And uh, so they... They didn't have the heating problem to concern themselves with, so that's why they got by with the materials that they that they were able to use, which was good. Good thing for that profile. Right. Yeah. That sure worked. So, how many X-15 flights uh, in total? Uh, Sixteen. Sixteen. Sixteen off the hooks. Yeah. Wow. And then what uh, what was next after that? Where do you where do you go? And and did you stop flying the X-15 when the pro- program itself wound down? Or did you get moved on to something else before it was uh, before it was done? I got I got moved on, or I moved on to the next NASA astronaut selection. Uh, NASA was selecting roughly once every other year, or once every two and a half years at that time, selecting a new class. Right. And uh, I felt it, it was obvious I was not going to be able to fly the X-15 forever because in the Air Force, you know, you get a new assignment rotation and. They bring a new guy on, and you leave and go, go fly an operational squadron. So I knew that that my time was probably not going to be much longer at Edwards, and so I applied for the next group of astronauts and was selected. So um, as we kind of wind down here, I, we we haven't even gotten to the next part of your career, which is the, <laughs> the which is the shuttle program. Yeah. You flew two two flights, STS two and fifty one L. Is that correct? Fifty one I. Excuse me. Yeah. This will be a long episode, so everybody just sit back and relax. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of this podcast thing. We don't really have deadlines. Jeannie hasn't thrown anything at us yet, so I think we're okay. So. <laughs> Chris is looking at you funny. But, yeah. But anyway. So. Um, well, I guess really, uh, uh, you're the only person to have ever flown two space planes in space, uh, the X-15 and the shuttle. Um, so could you compare them a little bit? I, I imagine it's it's uh, it's quite a bit different. And you're also the only person to ever hand control the space shuttle from orbit to landing. Um, so I guess you are very well qualified to be able to tell us how both of those flew manually. <laughs> but uh, uh, could you take us through it a little bit? Well, the reentry maneuver... Uh 
and the technique to to re-enter the atmosphere from from space, from exo-atmosphere or above the atmosphere, is uh, was really developed by the X-15. And by, by developed, I mean we learned each mission incrementally going higher and higher. At one time, I remember people thought the flight planners thought you, you'll fly the aerodynamic surfaces up till you shut the engine down and coast up above the atmosphere and then you'll, you'll fly reaction controls and fall back in the atmosphere to a certain altitude and they arbitrarily, I think it was 200, I think it was 200,000 or 250,000, I can't remember the number right now, but they, at that time you'll stop flying with reaction controls and you reach over and grab the aerodynamic control stick and start flying it like an airplane. And 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 you know the conversation would ultimately come out. Our, our our objectives for the altitude flights are to determine what that altitude is when you when you stop flying reaction controls mm -hmm. and you start flying aerodynamic. And it turns out that it it's so subtle and, and over a long period of time, relatively long period of time, that there isn't any magic altitude at all. It's it's you you fly reaction controls until you fall back into the atmosphere where. Your aerodynamic surfaces become effective first as trim surfaces, and you can feel that, and then then you can feel as they become more and more uh, able to control the flight of the airplane itself. So it's a it's a it's a gradual transition from one to the other, and the flight control system that was developed on the X-15, based on what we were learning on going higher and higher each time, was that uh, we we had to have a blended augmented flight control system that that could tell when your reaction controls were being overcome by aerodynamic forces and when the aerodynamic control was not just a trim function but an actual control function again and uh, so excuse me when you say that the the control system had to had to tell that um, so a question I've had when you're using the reaction control system are you st still making what we would recognize as normal stick inputs, or do you have your hands on a whole different set of controls? Um, or is it, as you said, the, the system knows whether to basically fire off the reaction controls or move the control surfaces depending on the responses? You're right on all counts. <laughs> well, that's the first, but you heard it here. You heard it here. End of the show. That was yes, that. all right. Mic drop. I'm out. How's that for being diplomatic? Yes. <laughs> and, and oversimplifying. It. <laughs> That's the story uh, of my life. That's, first, a, that's how you deal with me. At first, there were two sets, separate sets of, sets of controls. An aerodynamic okay. control. Uh, we used a hand controller on the side. We had a center stick, but it was mechanically linked to the hand controller on the side. Oh, and we learned that it, it was so much easier to fly from the hand controller. that uh, So we, used all, we were using it all the time. But on the other side of the cockpit was a, a, a handle, a little T-handle that came out that just went up and down, left and right, and then twisted for roll. Hmm. So it, you lift up on the, on the uh, handle, and it would open up valves to the hydrogen, hydrogen peroxide to fire out the bottom of the nose, and that firing reaction of that would push the nose up. Right. If you wanted the nose to come down, you'd push down on it, and it would fire on the top, and, uh, and the nose would go down left and right. So you control the attitude. But you weren't able to control a flight path over the ground at all with that, just attitude. Oh. Um, but uh, 
then Minneapolis Honeywell figured, well, we can we can help out. We were we were we were messing up on on reentry, in that we would get a hold of the aerodynamic control surface or stick, and be flying it with reaction controls, and not realizing it. But as the suit would inflate slightly, our arm would get pulled in, and we were making a little bit of a roll roll input to the aerodynamic surfaces. Uh -huh. <laughs> so as you started into the atmosphere, very subtly, it would start the airplane to roll, and it turned out roll to the left because it put your arm in. And uh, and we were counteracting that because it was so subtle, counteracting that with reaction controls. And we would get scolded after on debriefs by the engineers <laughs> saying, you guys are messing up. <laughs> you know, you're, you're really screwing up because you're going to run out of peroxide and, and lose control of the thing. And of course, test pilots don't make mistakes. Well, like of course that. not. <laughs> and I don't want to be the guy in the lab coat and the thick glasses, That's you know, right. telling the test pilot he made a mistake. <laughs> did you? you did but you ever was, just want to sock him in the mouth? No, because <laughs> okay. because by then, you know, they were they were sharp guys. Of you, course, you knew they were right, but you just couldn't believe you were doing it <laughs> until until they could show you on the oscillographs that yeah, look at the stick, it's coming oh, in, wow. and we realized that that's what was happening. But by not picking it up ourselves, they they decided that Minneapolis Honeywell decided we can solve this by very simple initial techniques. If if we see the surfaces moving seventy five percent of their total deflection, we can start adding in reaction controls and and back that up and back it off. And so they started by doing it that way, and then they then they started the rate gyros uh, feeding back into the system and. And had a blended flight control system, which worked very, very good, and which, in fact, is essentially what's used on the space shuttle. So I have um, one question about your the your first space shuttle flight, STS-2. That was one of the two-person shuttle flights, right? Yes. It was you and Truly, right? Am right. I remembering that right? Right. Mm -hmm. What's it like flying that giant space shuttle uh, with all of that interior space with uh, with just two guys up there? <laughs> uh, it it was busy. The 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 space shuttle is more than a two-person airplane to get configured correctly for re-entry and landing, and I, I'm not—I'm still not sure we had all the switches and circuit breakers in a pleasant and eye-appealing position <laughs> when we came back. Here. But um, but but we learned, and 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 the reason for only two people was at that time they wanted to—they wanted to have an ejection seat for mm -hmm. each crew member, and they could only get two two ejection seats in, mm -hmm. so. It was a two-person airplane at that time. But once the ejection seats came out, uh, there's a, a mission control specialist, uh, MS-3, that always sits in the jump seat right behind the center console. And he's part, of the, he's part of the primary entry crew to configure things to get it ready to come in and, and throw switches and circuit breakers. This must have been kind of, uh, I don't know, but must have felt a little empty on orbit um, uh, on, the, on that flight with that, you know, cavernous interior <laughs> well it, it it did but on the other hand we were extremely busy and didn't worry about that we had we had a five-day flight planned with five days of objectives to do and when we lost the fuel cell and they cut us back to two days um, we just decided we were going to stay up stay awake that first night and get as much of the testing done as we could on the arm on the external arm and and that sort of thing so we Said goodnight to everybody and turned the radio switches off and worked through night. So we worked all night. Wow. We didn't have any water to drink. Uh, what? <laughs> well, the fuel cell, uh, the uh, the membrane on the fuel cell let go. It it, it failed. And so the, we lost power from that one fuel cell. 
And that was the second flight in the program. Nobody really knew what had happened. They didn't want to take a chance of another fuel cell failing because then we'd be really in trouble. Uh, so they shortened the mission down and brought us back in. Wow. So uh, circling back quickly to Tom's question um, about, uh, you know, sort of comparing the, the two, is there, was there anything familiar about, uh, about flying this, this big, heavy glider uh, from space back down to a, to a landing at Edwards? Uh, yeah. Any comparison between the two? Very, very much so, yeah. And, and that's a good question because uh, from about Mach 6, which we got to with the, F6, with the X-15, the landing pattern and the profiles were almost identical layovers to the space shuttle. It had about the same low lift-to-drag ratio or same glide ratio as uh, the X-15 did. Really? And I would have I would have guessed the shuttle would have been better because there's so much more wing area, but it's also yeah. heavier and bigger and everything else. But Well, it actually is, is less dense than the X-15 was. You know, the X-15 was made out of steel, so it was, right. a, it was a pretty dense oh, airplane all, all the way. And it had... It had Pretty good, pretty good handling qualities. More like fighter handling qualities than the shuttle did. Wow. Um, but it had the same performance, basically the same performance from Mach six on down to touchdown. So we had we had 199 flights in the X-15 with that much experience that we can we were able to convince people we didn't need fold out turbojet engines to make the glide shallower for the space shuttle. We can. We could successfully fly that steep approach, make uh, precision landings uh, within a thousand feet of where we were wanted to land, and uh, and do it safely and repeatedly. It's absolutely amazing. I have one uh, one final question here. I have to ask. Uh, right. You're, you've become such an icon in space travel that you've recently <laughs> been given a recent award here, and it's sort of the sci or a, a real honor in a sci-fi world with the Star Trek uh, uh, <laughs> thing. Can you just elaborate on what they did? Uh, I don't know. I don't. Oh, you, I think uh, the the class of uh, the class of ship. They named a, a class of spaceship, starships, uh, and there's a class of they, they've got several. I don't know how many. Is this in one of the new in the new series, series in, in, yeah. in uh, yeah. Star Trek Discovery? Yeah, I I hadn't uh, heard yeah, that. Yeah, there's a, the Angle class, correct? Yeah, and I'm you know I gotta That's admit I don't follow Star Trek real closely <laughs> <laughs> because it follows you. All right? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. So> <laughs> well, no, not that. I just I just haven't had the time to do that, and I'm embarrassed that that you. But I did. Yeah, Jeannie, my wife told me that that they had done that and showed me a picture of it. As a matter of fact. Oh, and, that's uh, that is uh, that, that's kind of that's funny. a nice little uh, nerd salute, and I mean that with all well, affection. It's an honor. As, it's a, an honor. Uh, yeah, as one I, myself, and I do appreciate that very, very much. I'm oh, just is, not very familiar with that. That is just terrific. I mean, there's the Constitution class and Galaxy class, but uh, an angle class. An angle class. <laughs> well, it it kind of went the other way too, because they named a space <laughs> yeah. shuttle Enterprise after the uh, yeah, after, that's after right. Yeah. yeah, so the show, so life imitating art, imitating yeah. life, yeah. And, and on and on and on. Yeah. Uh, one very quick last thing, uh, Joe, before we wrap it up uh, for the day. And that is, um, you know, Chris has uh, has shared this story, and uh, you and I were both at the uh, the Air Force Museum at the same time. Um, hmm. I'm sure that was a thrill for you to see me there. Um, and uh, I was honored. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you were. I wanted to get your autograph. <laughs> We can arrange something. <laughs> very, very modest signing fees. Um, but uh, anyway, when they were uh, when they they had the sort of ceremonial opening of the fourth hangar at the National Museum of the oh, United yeah. States Air Force yeah. down in Dayton, yeah, and they moved the X fifteen, and then you were there for that event. Um, there's a story about you uh, about you uh, hitching a ride 
uh, in the X-15 moving into that hangar and, I, and, and how you got them to let you do that? Well, the lady who called and asked if it was possible for me to come up for the roll-in, uh, when they rolled the X-15 over from the other, from the other side of right field across right. the runway, across the grass field, and I said, well, great. Um, I'd really like that. And it, is there a chance of getting in the cockpit just for, you know, kind of old time's sake? And she said, well, no, I don't think so because um, you're not supposed to get into aircraft that belong to the National Aviation or to the Space Museum, the Air and Space Museum, uh, unless you're doing maintenance work on them. And I was thinking as fast as I could. I said, well, you know, the Air Force has a regulation when you tow an airplane anywhere, you're supposed to have somebody in the cockpit riding the brakes in case, just in case, so it doesn't run into anything. And she said, I don't think that's going to happen, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll check. And uh, I thought I was going to get to ride across the because X-15 doesn't have any brakes. You know? <laughs> right. Well, it's only got the nose wheel, right? Yeah. And then the skids in the back. The skids in the back. Yeah, the skids you, land, didn't have you, know, you count on skid friction to get yourself slowed down. But I thought it was worth a try. But uh, but they did let me crawl in the cockpit, and it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. Well, speaking of of wonderful experiences, that's exactly uh, what I would call today's episode. Joe, and I cannot thank you enough for taking some time to join us once well, again. thank you so much. It's my honor being here with you guys. Okay. And a lot of fun, too, by the way. Thanks. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, we, we do our humble best. So to everybody <laughs> out there, thank you so much uh, for listening. Thanks, as always, for the, uh, the wonderful feedback, both positive and constructive. Although, really, it's always just been all positive. So yeah, if you, right, if you yeah, have a complaint, yeah. now's the time. Yeah. Uh, send it to uh, Tom Sharpentier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, do please keep the, uh, the feedback coming, the reviews on iTunes, uh, the comments on our social media posts and then on our blog. All of that stuff makes a big difference to us and helps us uh, keep focused and, uh, and understand this is something that we want to continue, which we really, really do. So with that, thanks again to Joe Engel. And keep on listening. And we'll see you the next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. <laughs>